Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome all of you always to our gathering of God's people to listen to His Word, to live lives that are pleasing to Him. And so for those who are new with us, we are preaching through a series called The Psalms. The Psalms are like the songbook or the hymn book of God's uh, people in the Old Testament. There are 150 of them, and we have, we have started last week on Book 2, which begins with Psalm 42. So the issue today that begins our time together is good and bad unpredictability. So hopefully the first slide comes on. Good and bad unpredictability. So sometimes unpredictability is light and fun. And uh, so one of our staff brought the grandchild to, to, to church, a uh, young grandchild, about two years old or so. And as she walked in and uh, I was driving out, she, she waved, she was in the pram, and she just put out her hands like this, I'm back. Right? And only a child can say that. Then they, they pushed her uh, into my place where the pastor's wife was having a gathering. And as they, as they pushed her in, my wife said, she said again, I'm back. <laughs> then halfway through that fellowship gathering of the pastor's wife, she had to go to the washroom. And as she came out of the washroom, she said, I'm back. <laughs> and only a child can carry that off, right? Totally fresh, totally unexpected, totally unpredictable. You, you try that in, in your, as an adult. Everywhere you go, say, I'm back. They say, who are you? Are you okay or not? <laughs> That's not something. And, and so, it's good unpredictability. Did you read of the sad story of um, this Princeton graduate who shot his dad for cutting his allowance? The dad was a multimillionaire who had started an ent enterprise. And um, he threatened to cut the son's allowance from $1,000 a week to $300 a week. So, um, obviously, he was having problems finding a job. Obviously, he lived live a free lifestyle. And in a fit of anger, he pulled out a gun and shot his father dead. And so, his behavior up to that point had been unpredictable. And then his unpredictability reached a, a breaking point. And so, his unpredictability that led to his father's death has raised so many questions and caused so much pain. So, what did I just say? That unpredictability has raised so many questions and caused so much pain. If a human being's unpredictability can raise so many questions and cause so much pain and perplexity in life, how much more when God acts towards us in unpredictable, baffling, unexpected ways? Psalm 44 is about the unexpected, uncharacteristic, perplexing, confusing behaviour of God to His people. And there are maybe three main parts to this psalm. From verse 1 to 8, you see God's faithfulness or predictability in the past. But then as the psalmist reflects on this and writes this psalm, he sees God's unfaithfulness, as it were, or His unpredictable behaviour to them in the now, in the present. And so, as he faces this confusion, he's going to ask God, God, are you there? Can you wake up and see what you're doing? I'm really confused. So, that's the rough contours of our journey together. Are you ready? It's a very unusual psalm with precious lessons for us. Oh God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us. And so, how did they come to know of God? Uh, the fathers, generation after generation of Israelites, will pass on the knowledge of God, the story of, of God, 
the salvation story of God. And they would have passed this on where? In their homes. I make a side point, right? Today, the main way we as modern-day Christians and churches pass on knowledge of God and the saving story of God is in Sunday school for one hour. There's a weakness there. The main conduit and channel of God education, of Christian education, of biblical literacy is not in Sunday school. Sunday school is a modern invention. In Jewish faith, in God's blueprint, the knowledge, the knowing of God, His character, His conduct, His word, His will, His purpose for His people was passed on from father to son, from generation to generation. If you don't know what that means, huh? that means in modern-day Singapore, modern-day America, modern-day Africa, as you sit around to a dinner table every night, that's presuming we sit around and eat as, as a family, you talk mainly about God. I'm just going to pause there. Because what I just said there is totally radical. Around your dinner table, you do not talk about the food. Wow, so good, so good. Oh, so bad, so bad. Right? Or you complain. You talk about God and His story of saving you, which was the model of this was Israel passing down. That's a side point. But take a look at that. So they passed down what works He did, what deeds you perform in their days, in the days of old. With your own hand, you drove out the nations, the enemy nations that occupied the promised land that God had promised to His people. But them, Israel, you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. You, right? you afflicted the nations, but you set free your own people. And for not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. When you read this psalm, all 20 over verses of this, first thing to note in understanding it, it switches between the plural and the singular. So who is the we and us and ours? And who is the I and am? The us, the we and us, refers to the people. The I, in all likelihood, is the king, the leader and representative of God's people at the time. So the psalm switches from the plural to the singular at times, is the nation that speaks to God. At times, it is the king who speaks to God. Can you follow? There's a very important thing to observe. But put together, it is their collective national remembrance of God. Right? So, collective remembrance of God, what do they remember? This is the most crucial thing for God's people to remember. That everything that happened to them, they were chosen by God, they were set free from slavery in Egypt. They were set free from idolatry to go and worship God in the promised land. They were set, they conquered the promised land under Joshua. And all that was your arm, your hand, your face, your delight. When you and me remember our lives, you play back a video of your life. If people make a video of your life, you should see the fingerprints of God all over. For Israel, there was no other way to see it. You could see the hands, the fingerprints, the embrace of God all over. Apart from God, she would have never been given birth, let alone settled in the land, evicted of her enemies, and prospering in that land. All of God, none of us. All of God, none of us. What do you call that? With God, that's a life of grace. 
Now, just watch it for your own life as I make another side point. When you play back the video of your life and I play back the video of my life, you should see the goodness of God every step of the way. You agree? You better. Because you didn't come into the world by your own will. You didn't tell the atoms and molecules to constitute your cell and your organs and make you wonderfully. You didn't breathe breath into your own nostrils and air didn't go into your lungs to make you breathe. There's nothing within you for self-life. Please remember, when you look back over your life, it's all of God and none of you in that sense. So collective remembrance of God. Now he switches to the singular. You are my king, O God. Ordained salvation for Jacob, another name for Israel, God's people. Through you, we push down our foes. Through your name, we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in our bow do I trust. Notice. For not in my bow do I trust. Nor can not our sword save us. Nor can my sword save me. So did Israel's king have, did he fight barefisted? No. He surely had arms. He had the bow and the arrow and the sword. But he knows as he got up to fight, it was not him confronting the enemy. It was not him defeating the enemy. It was surely God who did it. So the collective experience of God is also the very personal experience of God's king. Why is that important? Because the two things feed on each other. If it's true of the whole nation, that it's God and God alone who saved us, it's true of every single person in that nation. And the two feed on one another. It's very important that we get this right. So, then there's a turn. And the turning point is the word, but. But you rejected us, and you disgraced us, and you have not gone out with our armies. So they actually had an army. The army actually went out to fight the battle. But the army only will, the, will win the battles if God, if the battle belongs to the Lord. And that's what God always told His people, beginning with Joshua, the battle belongs to the Lord. It doesn't belong to you. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoiled. You have made us like sheep, for slaughter, you have scattered us among the nations. So what do you call this portion? There's a turning point. If it ended at verse 8, right, it's called national remembrance and national celebration. In our modern day version, you could use verse 1 to 8 and play it at our national day rally. Because it's such a wonderful remembrance of the last 50 over years. He remembers, but now there's a turn from national celebration to national what? What do you call this? Choose a word for it. From national celebration, in verse 1 to 8, to national what? To national laments. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbours, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughing stock among the people. So we do not know exactly when this period was. And Christian scholars study this. Was this in reference to the exile? There are two periods of exile in God's people's history. In 722, the northern nation Israel 
because of her disobedience to God, because of leaving the worship of God and idolatry, God punished her. She was conquered and sent into exile. 722, please mark that down. Then in 587 BC, roughly about 150 years later, the southern nation also fell into spiritual adultery by idolatry, left the worship of the true and living God, chased false gods. She also fell and was taken into exile. But as you read the language here, it doesn't seem like the nation had done wrong in this case. So there is perhaps more internal evidence that this psalm was written before the exile. We don't know for sure, but trying to place it, right? So God himself has brought, it obviously refers to a battle. And in the battle, they lost the battle. How badly did they lose the battle? Convincingly lost. They were trounced, 10-0 example, right? Totally defeated. And then not just defeat wasn't enough, they were disgraced. Whoever were the survivors were taken off as prisoners. And how much are you worth? You want to turn to your neighbour, how much are you worth? Do you know when you're taken as a prisoner of war, there's zero value for you? Me, a human being, zero value. Me, God's person, is worth nothing in God's eyes. You sold us for nothing. We were taken as prisoners of war in a battle and then led to despair. The army was totally decimated with no chance to come back. If you ever get news that your son, your father, your son or your brothers were caught up in a platoon in a battle or in a battalion bigger, they were caught up in a battle and almost all got wiped out, the only thing you can feel, the only thing you experience is tears. Then you ask, okay, they beat us there, we will get them back the next time. The mental picture he paints for us here is that the army is decimated, there is no next time. It's not like playing a game, so NBA, this team plays the other team, so the, the world rugby, Japan just beat Ireland. Ireland is the number one nation in this. They got beaten by Japan. So, and the, the Irish will say, we'll come back next year and beat you back. Not in a battle like this. They were decimated. So defeat, disgrace, despair. So from national remembrance and celebration to national grief, to national sadness, to national lament. Have we ever gone through this? Have you ever been through this? A whole country grieving together? We had one or two. SARS, when 33 people died. When our founding father passed away, you never saw a phenomenon like this, that hundreds and thousands of people line up for hours to pay their last respects at all the different points. I went to the one at Botanic Gardens. And guess what? Singaporeans, as they line up for hours in the sun and the rain, didn't complain. There was a time of national lament. We are all in this together. You suffered the loss, I suffered the loss. You suffered the pain, I suffered the pain. You missed the man, I missed the man. That was what they were facing. We are in this together. What affects the nation affects me. I don't stand alone. I'm not immune to this. So that's why the personal and the national, the collective, feed into each other. So a spiritual formula that God's people could always depend on throughout her life was God had made a covenant 
with them. And God says, if you obey me, you'll be blessed in the land. But if you disobey me, you'll be cursed. As simple as that. We call that the Deuteronomic promises. So you read it at the end of the book called Deuteronomy. You obey me, here are the blessings. You disobey me, here are the curses. So a spiritual formula was God's people. You remember God's past faithfulness, His word, His works. And why do you remember the past? You remember the past for present obedience. So how many of you have former boyfriends and girlfriends? Don't put up your hands just in case you, your wife or husband is sitting beside you. I've told my wife or my former girlfriend, etc. Um, okay, so <laughs> most of us, when we in a weak moment, you remember your former girlfriend and your former. You remember the past for what? Because you're not so happy with your present relationship. You're not so happy with a present dating or courtship. You're not so happy, sadly and terribly, about your present marriage. So you reminisce about your past boyfriend or girlfriend to take you back to the past. There are different ways to remember, friends. For Israel, she remembered the past, not to take them back to the past. Remember the past faithfulness for present obedience. And that was part of the covenant relationship they had with God. But this formula of the love relationship with God was now not working. In Malay, if you're listening to this, the Malay language, we say here, Bopakai. It's not working now. Because it's now a spiritual problem. It's a spiritual failure. It's not a formula. It's a conundrum. Right? It's a question. They are recounting God's past actions and counting on Him to act in the same way. If we obey you, if we please you, if we worship you, shouldn't you come and bless us? Shouldn't you come and give us victory against your, your enemies? It worked in the past but it's not working now. And what do you call that? How come it worked for the past? It worked for others, doesn't work for me. If you stood in line and said, how come it worked for them? Didn't work? You are asking a question of unequal treatment. Why am I treated unequally? Why am I treated like a freak? Faith in God always worked for the past. Why does faith and obedience to God doesn't work for me? Why no victory for me? Why no blessing for me? But the deepest card is this. All this has come upon us. Though we have not forgotten you, though we have not been forced to your covenant, our heart has not turned back against you, nor our steps departed from your way, O God. So this is what he can't work out. If we have departed from you, so what, is, what kind of worship does God hate? You mean there's a kind of worship that God hates? The kind of worship that God hates, huh? I want to warn you now, because this is the most dangerous setting, 11.30 a.m. at auditorium in Bishan, where you are here in the body, but you are not here. Hello? I try that in slow motion. The most offending worship to God is that you are here in the body, you are dozing off, but your mind and your heart is not listening to God. We call that nominal worship. We call that external worship. You are here in the body, but you are not here worshipping God. So have I just scared the daylights out of you? Yes. You better go and worship in a more uncomfortable service. At least in a more uncomfortable service, you'll be awake. 
So God always hated when they arrive at the temple, I'm there, I'm here, offering my sacrifices, but their hearts are cheating their fellow Jews. I'm here, but I'm envious against my neighbour. So you can't sit here listening to God's word. Your mind is still on your work. Your mind is lasting after somebody else's wife or husband. Your, your heart is still unforgiving or angry about somebody. You are here but not here. That is dishonouring worship to God. Totally offensive to Him. But for this generation, writing, experiencing this defeat, experiencing this disgrace and despair, they have done nothing of that. There was no two-timing in them. We have not forgotten you. We have not been forced to the covenant. And guess what? Our hearts have not turned back. This is a hard thing. Listen. Yet you have broken us in a place of jackals, covered us with the shadow of death. God, didn't God say, if you obey me, you experience life with a capital L in the land? Life with a capital L in the land. But as we live now, it's death in the land even as we obey you. If we have forgotten the name of our God, I'll spread our hands out to a foreign God. We haven't left the worship of the true God. We haven't chased false gods in our hearts. We, are not, we haven't done that. Would not, have, would not God discover this? For He knows the secrets of the heart. Because when we were doing this in Bible study, right? Our Bible study groups, so good. They asked the question, maybe the writer of this, that generation, Maybe they were a little bit presumptuous, a little bit proud, a little bit, uh, a little bit deluded that they didn't think that they were wronging God, but actually they were. But in this case, no. He pleads, you know the hearts, you know the secrets of the heart. Search me, O God. You search the whole nation and we... What's he saying? He's not the deepest pain. We have not forgotten you. We have not been forced to your covenant. He's not pleading their general sinlessness, but he's, they are pleading their specific innocence that brought about this defeat and disgrace and despair. In that sense, some of us who perhaps know the Bible a little bit more says, it reminds us, reminds us of a Bible character. His name is Job. His name was Job. And Job, right, in one season of his life, you know, like an onion skin, the outer onion skin, first God took away all his possessions. It's a little bit like God took away your HDB flat, He took away your condo, He took away your house, He took away your CPF, He took away your stocks and shares, He took away everything. Then that's not enough. God can take away my wealth, but as long as I can work, I can build it up again. Then He took away my children, Second on onion skin. Then he took away not just my possessions and the people I love. Then he finally took away my own health. The inner onion skin. And three friends came along to Job and said, Surely, Job, there's something in your inner life where you sin against God. And Job searches his heart. He searches, I can't find. He wasn't pleading his sinlessness. He was pleading his innocence that brought about this punishment that brought about this suffering in his life. Psalm 44 is a macro version, an upsized version, a collective version of Job. We are not saying we are sinless. You are a holy God. We are never sinless before a holy God. 
But why? Because we haven't forgotten you. We haven't forsaken you. You and me, somewhere in our pilgrimage and journey with God, will walk through such a season. How he ends? How he ends is how we, I must always end, all preachers end, Awake! Sorry, it's in the verse. I've just read the verse to you, loudly. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O ARPC? No, why are you sleeping, O, o, o Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? And why do you forget our affliction and oppression? Why, why, why? So I, how do you normally respond when somebody wakes you up? How many of you respond positively whenever you are woken up? All the children here, when your parents wake you up for school in the morning, you wake up and say, Thank you, Daddy. Thank you, Mummy. When your spouse wakes you up from the snoring, Thank you. Nobody likes to be woken up. We all awake angrily. So sometimes when your phone, the alarm goes off, it says, keep quiet. So you need a few alarm clocks, a few alarms. You never like to be awakened. This is awakened spiritually. Please awaken yourself. Do you know what's happening to us? We send sons to war. They all got butchered. Do you know that? And they not just got butchered, we got taken as prisoners. Do you understand that? We've been obedient to you. Do, you. do you know that we are in national depression here? Awake, O oh God. Do not reject us forever. What's the most frightening thing that could happen to you in your life? You want to ponder that as I just slow down? What's the most frightening thing that you could experience in your life? Don't say your teacher. Don't say your parents. Don't say your boss. The most frightening thing that could happen in your life is not that you fail an exam, not that you lost your job. The most frightening thing that could happen in your life is that God has forgotten you forever. Do not reject us forever. That God has forgotten you temporarily, that's already frightening enough. That's sobering enough that God might possibly forget you and reject you forever is not something Israel as God's people ever contemplated because they thought they were the recipients of God's unconditional no-U-turn love. When God gives His love, He doesn't do a U-turn with it. When He offers it, He never takes it back. But now, God seems to be to be absent from them. So this is God's abandonment of us, could be forever. I perhaps use this, I've heard this in different ways as I travel around the world. And so I went to preach in Australia not too long ago and this man said to me, you know, when I was young, my father was really my hero. Really smart, my father. And not just smart. In the West, we don't so much appreciates the smart ones, the academic ones, the school achievers. But my dad was not just smart, but was a wonderful sportsman. Anything that was a ball he could hit, he could teach me. Right? And so my father was really the one person I looked up to all my life. Then my mother discovered that my dad was having an affair with her best friend. And she lived around the corner. And when my mother confronted him, my father just packed his bag and left to live with 
So, I probably told you this. The father went in his, in his eyes, this young man, from hero to zero. And guess what? The father never came back. When your loved ones leave you permanently, you are crushed in your spirit. The unpredictability of someone who was totally, who was supposed to be totally predictable in their love for you, a father's predictable love for a son, a mother's predictable steadfast love for a daughter, it should have been steady. And when you face the unpredictability of a steadfast love, your spirit is crushed. To contemplate that God could abandon Israel forever. For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. You know, soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Sounds like this is the condition and position of the serpent. Doesn't sound like this should be the position and the condition of God's beloved people blossoming in the land flowing with milk and honey as they obeyed God. Sounds like this should happen to God's enemies. But the last time I checked, I wasn't an enemy of God. I wasn't. So God, I'm going to say it again. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. So you know how he ends? You look at verse 23. Look at verse 26. Awake. Rouse yourself. Verse 26. Rise up. Come to our help. You know, if you read many of the 150 psalms, the psalm may be, many of the psalms may begin desperately. By the end of the psalm, usually the writer, the author, the psalmist will say, yet will I wait for you. Yet will I trust in you. In fact, I just read Psalm 27. Wait upon the Lord. Wait and take courage. Wait upon the Lord. In Psalm 44, there is no call to wait. Basically, the writer is saying, you can't accept this defeat and this disgrace and this national lament passively. You've got to take it and you run to God and ask God in the face, why? Why? You not aggressively, but you actively seek. You seek God for this. That is a very radical and different ending. And so what do we learn? The most important thing about Psalm 44 is that the New Testament quotes the Psalm. And where is it quoted? In what context? It's quoted by Paul the Apostle when Paul is writing about what? Psalm 44 verse 22 in Romans 8.36 As it is written, For your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now you think about it. Of the 150 Psalms, of the thousands of verses in the 150 Psalms, why does God, working through Paul the Apostle, pick one verse to help them explain suffering? That we who believe in Jesus will still suffer not might still suffer, but sure will suffer. Of all the different, of all the thousands of verses of the 150 Psalms, why does his God-given mind lock in like a GPS to Psalm 44, verse 22? And so the next 10 minutes as we end, you got to listen intently for you and me 
because this has everything to do with you and me, every single person. And you're listening to the podcast, this has everything to do with you. If you want to understand suffering, the suffering of the world, and suffering of Christians and the church in the world, you have to listen to how Paul uses this. If you don't listen to this, suffering will always be a puzzle to you. Ready? Context of Romans 8 is Paul explaining that in believing in Jesus for seven chapters, he's telling them about Jesus, a righteousness from God has come not by keeping the law, not by keeping the law, but a righteousness from God has come by Jesus, the law keeper. You do not try by your own human effort to be right with God. You trust in Jesus dying on the cross, rising from the dead, defeating the devil, washing you clean, and because of Jesus, sent by the Father, you have the Holy Spirit. So in chapter 8, he's going to introduce the doctrine, the person of the Holy Spirit. Basically says, as a Jesus person, you need the Holy Spirit to overcome sin. Verse 1 to 17. As a Jesus person, you need the Holy Spirit to face and overcome suffering. And as a Jesus person and Jesus community, the church, you need the Holy Spirit of Jesus and God the Father to overcome Satan's attacks. Are you ready? So I just want to pause here. I do not know what you know about the Holy Spirit, what you think, but according to Paul, is the indispensability of the person, the presence, and the power of the Spirit of God. Too many of us live as Jesus people minus the Spirit. There is no Jesus person minus the Holy Spirit. That is a defective faith. That's not our faith. A Jesus person will be highly conscious of the Spirit. The Spirit living in us will make us highly conscious and surrendered to Jesus. No dichotomy. Jesus person, Spirit person, Spirit person, Jesus person. Are you writing this down? Never mind. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin. So he's speaking of the Holy Spirit as if the Holy Spirit is God's new law. The law of the Spirit of life. Okay, let me do it this way. The law of the Spirit of life that has come because Jesus is Lord has set you free from the old law and the old law given through Moses for a period of time under God's reign led you to sin and death. God's law was meant to expose sin. You have broken the Sabbath. You have not honoured your father and mother. You have committed adultery. You have envied your neighbour. It exposes the sin. It will punish the sin. But the law was never meant to cure the sin of your heart. The law was leading us to the fulfilment of the law, Jesus, who would cure the sins of the heart. So because of believing in Jesus, God's Spirit overcomes that sin. There is no way you can face sin and try to overcome it. The power of it, the guilt of it. Second thing he says, verse 18, the Spirit and suffering. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. So Paul is saying, this thing for sure, as I share Christianity with you, I share what it means for you, right, to believe in Jesus, you will surely suffer. 
surely suffer. Present suffering, future glory. Present suffering, future glory. Present suffering, future glory. You must factor suffering in, personally and collectively. Why? Jesus said, if any man wants to come after me, he must take up his cross, right? deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. Deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. If you don't go to station number one, deny yourself, die to self, you cannot take up the cross, you will never follow him. So this is the formula for us. Then the spirit and Satan's attacks. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? And so, when we go through suffering, and the early Christians under Roman em emperors and empire went through the first bout of persecution. Nero is the most famous, Emperor Nero. And he would throw Christians to be eaten by lions. He would wax Christians and burn them alive to light his garden at night as he held his parties. Just go and Google what the Roman emperors did to early Christians. When that happens to us, any wave of persecution against the church in any country at any time is not because you sin against God. You don't go there. You don't, you don't draw sin and suffering. You don't draw that lesson. So please take note, anytime you're accused, firstly, spiritually by Satan and Satan working through all the authorities and your neighbours in the land, Satan is our chief accuser. Jesus is our chief advocate. Please take note. We ended Ephesians, right? And Ephesians ends with spiritual warfare. Remember? And I had three main lessons about spiritual warfare. One, we have only one arch enemy, Satan. You believe that? You believe that in life, you only have one ultimate enemy. What is his name? Tell me in reply. If you're listening to a podcast, tell somebody beside you. He's Satan. Then, do you believe that? Then how come you made your wife your enemy? How come you made your husband your enemy? How come as a teenager, you made your father your enemy? When your father said you cannot go to a party, you cannot dye your hair, not yet. You cannot do X, Y, Z. We are masters at making our loved ones our enemies. There's only one enemy in your life, and that is Satan. And Satan is a master of making every person he gives you your enemy from morning to night. Jesus, on the other hand, is our greatest advocate. You must believe that. He's always pleading for your holiness, for your righteousness, for your innocence. Satan is always accusing you in thought, in word, and deed. So let me say, some, say something about exams and under pressure. When you suffer, you're under pressure, right? In life. And this one's small, small time suffering. PSLE, two more days. Right? Two more days. Then after that is liberation. PSLE. For those who are listening to this, uh, it's a major primary school exam that determines the future of Singaporeans. 
It shouldn't determine. The government is telling you it doesn't determine your future. But we live as it determines. And then under pressure, whether it's a national exam like PSLE or ordinary exam that we give so much weight to, sometimes under pressure, we start to finger each other. Father blames mother, mother blames father. And then you blame each other. All that fingering of each other, all that finger pointing is Satan's work. I want to say that to you. You don't ever humanize that. There's a spiritual dimension when you point the finger about someone. Because under Jesus, we are not accusers. So whenever you point a finger and make somebody your enemy, you are under Satan's zone. Because Jesus is always pleading for your innocence. He's your greatest advocate. And in church, please don't point a finger and make enemies out of brothers and sisters in Christ. And please don't make an enemy out of me. I've got nothing against anybody sitting down here. If you've got a problem with me, that's your problem. Let me say that as clearly under God. Some of you I know by face, if I name you, I've got no, no problems with you, Stephen, right? I've got no problems with you. Right? I've got no. But somewhere along the line, you don't like what we say to you in a sermon. You don't like what we say to you in counsel. And then that's when you'll make an enemy out of me. Not just out of me, but one pastor, two pastors, three pastors. Sometimes you make us enemies of each other. As you don't want to listen to the advice we give you, we say to you, you can't date that girl. She's not a Christian. Up to that point, I was your friend. When I say don't date her, I'm your enemy. Can you see how it happens? And so don't finger point each other here. It's very important. This is not the main point, but accusation is not of God. As it's written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We regard it as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. You know the Greek word there? He's using a superlative. We are super victorious. We are super triumphant. Super, no? I'm preaching this with all my heart, as you can see, right? Look at me. I'm super passionate, right? Trying to. Lah. How come you sit there? Super botap. Super lamnoa. Just... Uh, because we don't understand that we need the Holy Spirit to live this victorious life through Him who loved us. So what are the takeaway lessons? Psalm 44 in Romans 8, the cause for the collective suffering of God's people is not all the time. See the sequence, huh? follow me. Sin against God. Then once you sin against God, though nobody knows of your sin, you will carry the guilt in your heart. Sin against God, guilt, and then soon, punishment. That's what God told His people. You sin, there's guilt, there's punishment. You sin, there's guilt, there's punishment. Sometimes when we suffer as God's people, there is no formula. No sin, no guilt, no punishments. The persecutions, the waves of persecutions against the church from the first century Roman emperors right to the 21st century, we do not follow this trail. Sometimes our suffering is not punishment from God, but really a battle scar. It's not from God, but I'm suffering for God. That's quite different. From God and for God are two different things. Right? And get this right. God doesn't punish His children again. God disciplines us. Hebrews chapter 12. God disciplines those He loves. He doesn't punish those he loves. Because the punishment has been poured out on his son once and for all on the cross. 
So if you are a true child of God, you must never fear being punished again. But you must expect discipline if you stray from being a son and daughter of God. So what does this mean? A battle scar for Christ? Jesus is the original sufferer, the innocent sufferer, the unjust sufferer. Because in Isaiah 53, which you must read and understand, Jesus, as the ultimate, he was the ultimate sheep led to the slaughter. No protestations, no rebellion against that. And we who believe in Jesus, if the head of the church was like a sheep led to the slaughter, then those who believe in him will walk the same path of righteous suffering. So in Christian suffering, it's never meaningless. Why? Because when we suffer as Christians and as a church, for those he foreknew, can we read this together? For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And so Paul is trying to explain to you, to, to us, beginning with the first Roman Christians who would suffer persecution, that you have to factor in suffering en route to glory. And when you suffer, it's never meaningless, never purposeless. It's so that God can make you more like His Son. Amen? So we are sharers of Christ's most purposeful suffering. Jesus' purposeful suffering brought us salvation, secured our salvation. We who suffer in following Him as the head, we don't secure salvation, we are working out our salvation. We are becoming more and more like our Saviour as we live in a world and groan in this world. So Romans 8 will tell you, God can turn everything from suffering and even death. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And He can turn everything from suffering to death for our church's good, the church's good, and for God's glory. So I do not know how many times I've been to ICU as I try to personalise this. Even with the caveat that this is a national grief and national lament, most likely referring to collective persecutions. But how does this unpredictable suffering turn up in my life? How many times have I turned up in ICU over the last 28, 29 years as a pastor? And young child just born in ICU fighting for his or her life. I arrived there with my huge Bible. And guess what? Look at how thick my Bible is. When I arrived there with my huge Bible, surely for the couple whose child is in ICU, I have some answers. No, I have no answers. I carry the Bible, but I have no answers. And why is that important as we come to an end? Because three lessons in ending. There's a lesson of continuity. There's a history of God acting in unpredictable ways towards His people. And when God acts in unpredictable ways, you always have to factor in suffering en route to glory. You can be sure that in your life, God will act in unpredictable ways as you live in a world hostile to God, as we groan living outside Eden. So let me just give a small illustration, then ask you for the bigger one. 
So Singapore's second fastest aging nation of the world. So how are you going to look after old folks? Let me ask you, how, how many people do you think in Singapore now are above 80 years old right now? Rough, rough figure. How many people in Singapore are above 80 years old? Just guess lah, to see whether you read anything or not. Anything good lah. Anything good. There are more than 100,000 people, if I'm not wrong, about 117,000 people, I just read it last week, in my memory is right, who are above 80. 10 years ago, it was about 50 plus thousand was above 80. In 10 years from now, right, so you mount it. So we're going to, second fastest aging nation, who is going to look after who? When I proposed to my girlfriend, then Mona, right, I said to her, I'm going to Bible college, and second thing, I'm going to look after my mum. Right? Are you okay with that? And you've heard the story many times. She said, okay. Because my mum was already 75 years old. She was thinking to herself, she's 75. How long more can she live? My mum lived another 22 years. To 101. That's why me and Mona look so holy. Totally sanctified. And so... From that young age, under God, I was convicted, not that I'm better than you, not that you're worse than me, etc. I was convicted that I'll factor in looking after my aged parent. My father had passed on, I made a promise to God, I'll look after my mum. So I factored in. You know what factoring, looking after, factoring in looking after your aged parent might look like? It will change your lifestyle. It will slow you down. You have to spend money differently. You have to take holidays differently. Every di thing you do, you have to think of the person you're living with. I just macro that for you. Have you factored in suffering into your life? That this is a sure thing to come to you. 110% is going to come. And some of us sit there, really? How come nobody told me that I'm going to suffer? I'm telling you now. And you're saying, as you sit there, I wish I never came to this sermon. <laughs> Even if it didn't come, it's still there. It's like the haze. Nobody told you about the haze. It's coming. It's there. You can't factor it out. You can't bail out on suffering. It's there because you follow your suffering Christ. Lesson on unpredictability. God may be unpredictable in His ways. He deals with the world and deals with His church. But you mustn't conclude prematurely and wrongly that God is unreliable. Never equate unpredictability to unreliability. Whatever you do not know about God, He is 100% rock solid. Amen? Hmm. Very, very... Amen. The unpredictability of ways is not equal to the unreliability of His character. And whatever you do not know, God's character is consistent. And what is it you must plead for? When God acts unpredictably towards you personally, or unpredictably towards us collectively, as a church, going through hostility, going through enmity from our world, don't look for His actions. Lord, please help, help us. Act. Please give us an answer why I'm suffering. Those two things are the wrong things to look for. Don't look for his actions. Don't look for his answers. You look for his love. For Paul will end in Romans 8.39. Nothing can separate us from his action. He doesn't say that. Nothing can separate us from his answer. He doesn't say that. 
Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Sometimes when you go through a rough time, don't go looking for action. God's acting on your behalf. Intervention. Don't go looking for answers. You may not find it. As they knock on your door and they burn you down in a period of persecution, no action, no answer. I died. We died. But you die trusting in Jesus' invincible love. That He knows you stood up for Him and He will raise you from the grave. You look for the wrong thing, you're going to give up on faith in Jesus. So I want to ask you now, what are you looking for? What are you looking for? You're looking for His intervention? Maybe God will not intervene. Don't look there. Maybe you're looking for answers. Don't look there. Like Job, he's not going to answer you. He's going to be silent towards you from now to the end. But his love will carry you through. That though I die, I die loved by God, remembered by Him, and one day will be rewarded by Him. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And final lesson, not simply of continuity, not simply of unpredictability, but of lament and grief. There's a time and place in a believer's life, in a church's life, for what? For lament. A time when you can, you can cry out to God, a time to ask questions of God, a time to plead, not God's faithfulness, but my faithfulness. Save me according to my faithfulness. That sounds pretty proud, no, that sounds pretty honest. That's why Psalm 18, I love it. Right? Save me according not according to your right, right to your righteousness, but save me according to my righteousness. Read the Psalms with some care. And then at times you may say, God, are you awake? Are you asleep? Are you indifferent to me? So a lesson on lament. The rightness of lament is not in our doubts but the goodness and the necessity you need to cry out is good for your spiritual well-being, is good for your mental well-being, is good for your emotional well-being. It's good that you cry out, that you ask questions, that you plead your faithfulness, and you plead your innocence. I'm not guilty here, Lord. I'm not. And surely, a God of justice, you know this. If you have never done business with God that way, you haven't suffered. And any child of God who goes through unjust suffering will know what it means to plead that. And I want to assure you, as your pastor, I'm on my knees every morning pleading for me to be right with God in Christ Jesus and pleading on your behalf if I know of your pain and of your suffering, especially if it's through a season of unpredictability. So nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Amen? Love of God poured out in Christ. Be assured of that. Let's go to God in prayer before we celebrate the communion.